This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragbag presents Brollywood, episode two. Written and performed by Frank Burton. I suppose it goes without saying you should listen to episode one first. I don't wish to patronize anyone with this fairly obvious advice, just in case you didn't know, this is a continuous nine part story. Start with episode one, if you like. If you prefer not to, that's a bit weird, but go ahead. Your life, your rules. Let's get on with the story. There was a story Noddy once told me in prison, which he'd never been able to verify. Believe me, I tried, he told me. So many people in the community had heard this rumour, all from separate sources. That doesn't necessarily mean it isn't true. Some stories just take off, you know. They take on a life of their own, however it was that they started. I should explain something about Noddy's use of the word community here, although at the time I had very little understanding of it. It was community with a capital C. I'd initially assumed that whenever Noddy used the word community, he was referring to parts of the criminal underworld he was connected to in some way. Later it became clear that a lot of Noddy's connections within this community were technically law-abiding citizens. Actually, citizens is the wrong word to use. We'll come to that later. The story goes, said Noddy, that during the early 1970s, the British government devised a highly classified long-term strategy for the recruitment of new intelligence agents. This was the height of the Cold War, with billions being spent on covert ops. The plan was quite simple. A new cohort of future agents will be born and raised in a secret location. Most versions of the story place this location as being a private mansion somewhere in the English countryside, most likely Hertfordshire, or at least that's the location stated in most versions of the story. Within this compound, somewhere between 25 and 50 government employees were coerced into acting as surrogate mothers spending the full term of their pregnancies within this isolated environment before delivering their offspring and promptly departing back to normality, never to see the children they'd given birth to and barred from speaking about their experiences by the Official Secrets Act. From the moment they were born, those 30 or 40 kids were raised to be intelligence agents. Every aspect of their upbringing was designed to mould them into becoming the ultimate espionage tool. Sounds like they're so elite that no one even knows if they exist or not, I said. It didn't quite work out the way they planned though, said Noddy. After years of intensive training, covering everything from combat to analytics, this new generation of 007s finally reached the age of 18. They were primed, hungry, and ready to be deployed. It was 1989. Shortly after their training was completed, the Berlin Wall came down. 
Some versions of the story feature a scene in which these eager young men and women stand watching the television in the compound's common room. The TV is showing the wall coming down. They turn to each other and ask, What's next? Sure, the ground may have shifted somewhat, but this doesn't mean world peace. There are other enemies to fight, right? This was, of course, a valid point, and yet there was something about this moment in history, this switch in the grand narrative of 20th century geopolitics that prompted the British government to pull the plug on the project. Shortly after the wall came down, the young men and women were assembled together and briefed by one of their superiors. Some say this briefing was led by none other than Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. The agents were informed, in no uncertain terms, that their services were no longer required. They were a product of the Cold War. The Cold War was now over and done with, and so they must stand down. How? I said. Exactly. That's exactly what one of them blurted out during the briefing. The news had come as such a shock that even with a lifetime's ingrained respect for authority, answering back to the Prime Minister seemed entirely reasonable. How are we supposed to stand down? They said. What are we supposed to do now? Our sole purpose in life is to serve our country. We can't even integrate back into society, seeing as we were never part of society in the first place. We don't even have birth certificates. We don't even have names. It was true, said Noddy. They were even barred from nicknaming each other. Each individual was known by a number and that was all. How could these people be expected to live normal lives, considering the way they'd been raised? If I can clarify, said Thatcher, or whoever it was who was given the briefing, when we say stand down, we don't mean stand down permanently. It's entirely possible, some might say inevitable, that future antagonists will pose an equal, if not greater, threat than that of the Eastern Bloc. And if so, we ask you to simply wait until the time is right. Wait until you're truly needed. Until then, you must stay here. Stay here and enjoy yourselves. For these young people who'd never been given much of a chance for enjoyment, this was a daunting prospect. They were supplied with a library of books, VHS tapes, a range of sports equipment and several video games consoles. Supplies were shipped into them regularly. They were advised never to leave the compound under any circumstances. No one ever did, although in the years that passed at least three of them took their own lives. The rest of them occupied their time as best they could. Most of the agents continued to prepare themselves for their work in the outside world, maintaining a gruelling daily exercise regime extensive reading and study, despite there being no official requirement for these activities. Most agents' time was taken up this way, to a greater or lesser degree. However, there were five agents who chose not to join in with their peers' voluntary self-improvement programmes. It's said that these five individuals, three male, two female, coincidentally, the agents numbered one, two, three, four and five had formed a close bond. They were the only five agents to fully accept their directive to stand down from their duties and enjoy themselves. Two of them became very good at table tennis. 
The other three were masters at Super Mario Brothers. The agents were permitted to consume alcohol and in fact were given a specified allowance to ensure they never overindulged. However, having been left to their own devices at the compound with minimal supervision, Agents 1-5 to five quickly devised an arrangement by which their peers would happily donate their alcohol allowances to The Hand, as they'd become known, in exchange for the understanding that, once an actual mission had been approved, any member of The Hand who'd been selected would stand down in favour of a member who donated their alcohol allowance. So these guys were trading on the notion that they were still active agents, I said. Exactly, said Noddy. As far as the hand were concerned, it was a no-brainer. There were no forthcoming missions. The 30 or so remaining individuals in that compound were a kind of lost generation. They'd all been compulsorily sterilised, which meant that there wasn't a chance of a second lost generation, this, at the very least, made contraception a lot more straightforward. That's interesting, I said. I wonder what sexual relationships would have been like for those people. They never lived within normal society, so maybe they didn't even have monogamy as a concept. They were taught about how people lived, said Noddy, and they were taught about how they were supposed to behave in order to fit in with society's norms. But that only accounts for their formal training, which ended at the age of 18, after which they were specifically told, by the Prime Minister no less, to stand down and enjoy themselves. I don't know what actually happened, but so the story goes, the five had some wild parties. When their colleagues complained about excessive noise from these gatherings, they were told, hey, get used to it. Any minute now, you could be shipped out to a war zone. If you can't handle a little loud music, how are you going to cope with an air raid? I wonder what music they were listening to, I said. That part isn't known about, said Noddy. Well, it was the 1990s, I said, so I suppose it's likely to be either astonishingly good or irritating as hell. I couldn't possibly say, said Noddy. I don't know anything about music, but what I do know is what came next. You know what came next too, right? Why would I know what came next, I said. Let's put it this way, said Noddy. Do you remember where you were on September the 11th, 2001? Yes, I said. I was working in a hotel. My friend came over to see me. There you go. You've told me that already, all the Jenna stuff. There's my point. You can immediately recall where you were at the time. And why is that, do you think? I guess, I said, because it was another of those pivotal moments in history in which the narrative shifted. Exactly said Noddy, and now here they all were, not kids anymore, but men and women, most of whom had already turned 30, watching the TV news. They could feel it, the change that was coming. Later that day, with all the news still playing in the background, they received a call from one of their supervisors, advising them to stand by. What had happened that day in America was a tragedy for sure, but this was also the day they'd been waiting for. Over the days that followed, agents within the compound were hand-picked for deployment in various unknown locations. They left, one by one, until the house only had five inhabitants. You can probably guess which five were left. Uh, that would make sense, I said. Twelve years since they finished their training and all they'd done was get drunk and play Mario Kart. So what did they do? They carried on living their lives, said Noddy. As you say, there was no way the hand were going to be called for active duty. 
they were lazy, out of shape, borderline alcoholic, and had probably forgotten most of what they'd initially been taught. But what were the government supposed to do with them? Keep on paying for these five guys to party in a private mansion for the rest of their lives? They had no other option, said Noddy. From any official point of view, the hand were not to be trusted. They couldn't be sent out to work. They couldn't be reintegrated into society for fear of the secret getting out. They could probably get away with killing them, and rumour has it this was discussed as a serious option, but was dismissed on ethical grounds. Or maybe that decision was influenced more by how horrendous it would have looked were the story ever to be made public. And so the hand continued, living in their mansion, partying, watching films, playing table tennis. So I guess they're still there now, I said. No, said Noddy. But this is where the story ends because no one actually knows what happened next. All we know is the hand aren't there anymore. One day, they were living their lives in captivity, and the next, they'd vanished. Really, captivity is the wrong word to use. They weren't exactly held captive. They were advised it was illegal for them to set foot outside the grounds of the house. But other than an eight-foot fence, nothing had ever physically prevented them from leaving. The presumption was that the hand had grown bored of the house, and bored of each other's company, and so they agreed to climb the fence and head off their separate ways to find lives for themselves somewhere. This was a whole two years ago. Thus far, none of the five have ever been traced, which adds some weight to the conspiracy theory that they were killed in their sleep and disposed of. What's more likely is that the Hand weren't quite as incompetent as their bosses had assumed. They each had 18 years of intensive espionage training behind them. How difficult would it be for an elite spy to disappear? You're right, I said. I guess that would be easy. There are all sorts of speculative stories about what might have happened to them, said Noddy. Some more fanciful than others. People like the idea that the five of them stayed together and formed their own secret crime fighting group. It would make a decent comic strip, I suppose, but there's no evidence that anything like that happened. It's a great story, I said. Aside from the superhero stuff, it sounds very plausible. Noddy nodded. I believe it, he said. I told this story to my new friend Jamie one night. He loved it. He believed it too. I wonder where they are now, he said. It's been almost 20 years. Maybe they're so far into their newly invented versions of themselves, they never need to think about their origins. Do you think they're actually out there, living normal lives, I said? What else could they have done? I'm not buying the idea that they form their own crime-fighting troop. On the other hand, if they decided to use their skills for the opposite of crime-fighting... What do you mean, form their own gang? Imagine the number of bank robberies they could pull off. Now it's getting far-fetched. I don't think so, said Jamie. In a way, it's a more plausible explanation as to what happened to the hand and why they all left the compound together. They must have had some kind of plan that involved the five of them. Blending into society, having never been part of it, can't have been an option, not for all five of them. Anyway, the name's a giveaway. They called themselves the Hand because, together, they were greater than the sum of their parts. If one of them were to leave the group, it would be very much like an amputation. Alone, you're a disembodied finger. Together, you're a Hand. I see what you mean, I said. That's something to think about. 
A couple of weeks after I moved in with Glinda and Jamie, the two of them had a blazing row in the middle of the night. The following morning, Glinda packed a suitcase and left. Jamie seemed a bit shaken up, but he was happy to be no longer sleeping on the couch. A week later, Jamie moved out too. He left for work one morning and never came back. A few days later, a removal company arrived and shipped off all of Glinda and Jamie's things, leaving nothing behind but bare furniture. I found a folded piece of paper on the floor of my room. It was a note from Jamie. He must have slipped it under my door on the morning he left. The note said, Sorry for the quick change of plan, Frank. I've been talking to Glinda about the house, and we've decided between us that we're going to rent it out. Don't let this worry you. It would be unfair to ask you to leave, considering the circumstances. Whoever rents the house from us will effectively be your new housemates. Stay as long as you like, mate. He signed off with his phone number at the bottom. I sent him a text thanking him for his generosity and told him I'd return the favour someday. You already have, he texted back. Some of your stories were priceless. Keep them coming. A couple of weeks later, a family of four moved in. Glinda and Jamie's room was allocated to the two kids while their parents slept downstairs. I stayed in my room out of everyone's way, COVID-19 having provided me with a reasonable excuse not to get involved in this family's life. Often I sit and listen to their incomprehensible conversations. They probably forgot I was there most of the time. This setup reminded me of another of Noddy's stories. Noddy claimed there was a man secretly living in Buckingham Palace. There was a hidden room classified in all official documents as a storage cupboard in which this man slept. He spent most of his time there, but it wasn't feasible for him to stay hidden away the whole time. There was no accomplice bringing him food. He'd take whatever he needed from the kitchen, make use of whichever bathroom allowed him to be most discreet. When he wandered around the building, he'd wear a butler's uniform and nod courteously to whoever passed him by. Here was the key to this man's genius. If anyone else had attempted this tactic, they'd have been quickly caught out. For obvious reasons, security at the palace is extremely tight. If a member of the public is found wandering the corridors without a clear reason for being there, they'd be quickly ejected. It's not simply a case of wearing a butler's uniform in order to pass yourself off as a member of staff. For anyone else, that approach wouldn't have worked for a second. Each member of the palace staff knows every other member of staff by face and by name. If any of them were to walk past the man in a butler's uniform, they'd ask him who he was and what he was doing there. Likewise, whenever the man walked past an actual member of the royal family, they didn't suspect him of not belonging there. But the fact of the matter is, the man who secretly lives in Buckingham Palace has never been employed to work there. He doesn't work there. He sleeps in a hidden bedroom, helps himself to food from the kitchen and uses the bathroom facilities. In all of his time there, this man has never spoken to anyone and even more impressively, no one has ever spoken to him. So what's the deal? I said to Noddy. How has this happened? Why doesn't anyone ask him what he's doing? It's a trick, said Noddy. It's as simple as that. The man has been trained in the art of psychological suggestion. Everything about him, his clothes, his mannerisms, the way he moves, the way he looks at you without really looking at you, and the way you look back at him without really seeing him. The whole performance is designed to make this man virtually invisible. Right, I said. My next question is why? There's a complicated answer to that, said Noddy. It would be quicker to say I don't know which is the truth. I'm interested in the complicated bit now, I said. 
Well, the thing is, Frank, this isn't just a story I'm telling you. This is a real person. I've never met him myself, but I've seen photographs. I've met his father, who's responsible for training him. This is where it gets complicated. When you ask about this man's motivation, I can't answer the question without telling you about his father's motivation. The first fact to mention about this man's upbringing is that he shares a lot in common with the hand. Is he a secret agent? No, not a government agent anyway. But he doesn't officially exist. His birth was never registered. He was born in secret, brought up in an obscure part of the English countryside with minimal contact with the outside world. Both parents were equal instigators of this project, but his father was the real driving force behind it. It was his father who trained him up, taught him the skills he needed to move into his new home. According to his father's account, the boy was ready for his first trial by the age of 12. He couldn't head straight for Buckingham Palace without some real-world experience first. So at the age of 12, the boy spent two weeks living in a secondary school. It must have been weird for him, to say the least, having been raised without any formal education, to suddenly spend 24 hours a day living in a school, with half this time spent surrounded by regular kids his own age, who he wasn't allowed to speak to, and the rest of his time living in a makeshift bunk in an unused equipment cupboard. Sounds like torture, I said. That's what I believe it was, said Noddy. When I say I know this man's father, that doesn't mean we're friends. I believe what he did to that boy was cruel beyond belief. But some people in the community disagree. Some see him as a visionary. Having met him, I can confirm that's exactly how he sees himself. When he tells the story of his son spending a fortnight in that school, he speaks of the triumph they achieved together. Countless pupils and staff members caught sight of him several times a day, and yet no one seemed bothered by his presence. He didn't speak to anyone, and no one spoke to him. A few years later, they repeated the experiment, upping the stakes further. At the age of 16, the boy spent an entire month living in a police station. Again, successfully undetected. Over the course of the next two years, they tried a number of different environments, a museum, a department store, and finally, in the ultimate endurance test, the young man was faced with the challenge of spending six weeks living on board a working passenger plane. He spent most of his time hiding in plain sight. Whenever there was an unreserved seat, he'd be sitting in it. None of his fellow passengers attempted to strike up a conversation. None of the cabin crew offered him lunch. In their minds... He was there, but also he wasn't there. Occasionally someone would stop for a moment, look twice, and then look away again. When his six weeks were done, it was clear this young man was ready. He moved into Buckingham Palace shortly after that. And that's it, I said. He's staying there now. Noddy nodded. It's basically the last level, if you like. He's completed the game. He'll be there for the rest of his life, I expect. Surely he'll get bored after a while. I said. Won't he want to do something else? He's been there for 35 years, said Noddy. Wow. I'm aware that I haven't answered your question yet, said Noddy. You wanted to know what the man's motivations are. What's his name, by the way? He doesn't have one. This is all part of it. It's all part of the reason people don't register him in their minds. They believe he doesn't exist partly because he himself has been conditioned to see himself as a non-person. So in terms of his motivation, it's difficult to say how a man like this feels. He's been programmed since birth to fulfil this pointless destiny of being the man who secretly lives in Buckingham Palace. 
That is his sole reason for being. How he actually feels about all of this is anyone's guess, but he's still there. He's still doing it. So from his point of view, I said, he's just doing what he's been told to do. Maybe he's happy with it, maybe he's not. I guess we'll never know. But what about his dad's motivations? I can't quite get my head around why he's inflicted this weird life on his own son. As far as I can tell, said Noddy, the man thinks of himself as an artist. He thinks the fact that his son secretly lives in Buckingham Palace makes a great story. But it's more than just a story. He's there right now, a 53-year-old man living out his days in a cupboard in one of the most famous buildings in the world. To him, it's not just a story. It's a masterpiece. Anyway, that's how I felt. Living sealed away in my room, listening to those children squabbling and singing songs, those adults bickering and having noisy sex late at night. I felt like the man who secretly lives in Buckingham Palace. One afternoon, a couple of weeks after the family moved in, I was woken by the sound of a man playing acoustic guitar and singing at the top of his voice. It happened to be one of my favourite songs, If You Go Away, which I'd always assumed was a Scott Walker song until I found out he covered it. The man was doing a damn good version of his own, combining Spanish guitar with some impressive vocal flourishes. Where was it coming from? Was there a busker outside? He played a couple of instrumental pieces next, followed by Elton John's Daniel, which I've always loved too. It felt like a private concert just for me. I looked out of the window, but I couldn't see anyone. It was only when I returned to the opposite side of the room that I realised the singer was inside the house. Presumably it was my new cohabitant. I wanted to applaud, but decided against it. Clearly he wasn't singing for my benefit. Where were the others? When the music stopped, the house was silent and remained silent for quite some time. I got into the habit of spending most of my day in bed and writing at night time, so I often didn't hear from the other members of the house. It was weird for the house to be silent at this time of day, though. The woman and the kids must have gone out. The man slept in the children's room that night. A couple of days later, after eavesdropping on a couple of his phone calls, it became apparent that the couple had broken up. She'd left with the kids. He planned to move out too as soon as he had somewhere to go. He was gone by the end of the week. I felt bad that I'd never got round to telling him what a great musician he was. He probably knew that already, but still, maybe he was one of those insecure talents who need that little nudge of encouragement to take it to the next level. I texted Jamie and asked what was going on. He confirmed the family had officially moved out and they'd be replaced at some point. They'd paid their rent up to the end of April, so there wasn't a need to get someone in straight away. I texted back within seconds. I'll be your new tenant. I've got money and don't much like the idea of more random people arriving who I can't be in the same room as. Great, he texted back. I'll send you a contract in the mail. It was such a relief to read those words. Having an entire house just to myself seemed like the ultimate extravagance. I could play loud music, cook smelly food, make as much mess as I wanted. Having spent the last few months living in a van, I had to admit it was liberating having all that space. A week or so into this new life of mine, I got out of bed at noon. I'd cooked a lentil curry the previous evening and the leftovers were still sitting in the wok in the kitchen. I stuck the heat on low, letting it slowly bubble itself back to life. 
I whacked on some microwave rice and scooped out half the wok's contents to stick on top. I wandered around the house with the bowl in my hand, munching as I walked. I decided to take the van out for a spin, just to make sure the battery didn't go flat. It felt nice to be on the road again. I also liked the idea of not having any particular destination. Just cruising around the empty streets with no plan of action felt very relaxing. I'd been avoiding the news as much as possible, but it was impossible not to get caught up in all the what-ifs. Driving really took my mind off all of that stuff. At some point, it occurred to me that I didn't know where I was. Also, I didn't know where I was going back to. Despite the fact that I'd spent a month living in that house, I didn't actually know the address. Then another thought occurred to me. When I reheated that lentil curry, did I turn the gas off afterwards? Probably, I thought. I'd better get home and check. Well, first of all, I'd better find out where home actually is. I parked up outside a barber's shop with its shutters down. I called Jamie, but he didn't answer. I was going to try calling Glinda, but I realised I haven't taken her number. I sent a text to Jamie saying, What's the address of the house? Let me know as soon as you can, mate. He was probably at work, but I guess maybe he'd be checking his phone at some point. Half an hour later, having received no reply, I texted again saying, I don't want to worry you, but I think I might have left the cooker on. Let me know as soon as you can. Five minutes later, Jamie texted me the address. He added, I hope you're not too far away, Frank. I checked the sat-nav. The house was an hour and a half's drive away. I didn't realise I'd been driving for that long. I set off, assuring myself it was all fine. Everyone worries about leaving the cooker on sometimes, and at this moment in time, there are worse things that could be happening. I stuck some music on the stereo and cleared my mind of thought. Ninety minutes later, I arrived to find my new street had been cordoned off by emergency services. I parked up and jumped out. The smoke was still thick in the air. The remains of the house were visible beyond the barrier. The walls were still standing at least. The fire had caved the roof in and cracked the windows right off. I got back in the van. I wrote to Jamie a long, gushing string of apologies, assuring him the whole thing was a stupid, thoughtless accident. I told him what an important friend he'd become in such a short space of time and I wished I could see him face to face, I wished I could give him a hug. I paused breathlessly, as though I'd been reciting the whole thing out loud. Before sending the text, I read it back to myself. Although I'd meant every word of it, somehow the whole thing sounded insincere, almost sarcastic. I couldn't quite figure out why. Surely I could manage more than banter at a time like this. Maybe not. I deleted the text and replaced it with the words... Whoops. Soz. I set the sat-nav for Uncle Claude's house and off I went. I was going to say without looking back, but technically I needed to use my wing mirrors when pulling out of the space. I am, at the very least, a responsible driver. I had Uncle Claude's address in my phone for sending birthday cards to, but I'd never actually been to his house. I was expecting something pretty impressive. Claude had done well for himself and had recently retired. I wasn't disappointed by the size of a house, a big, detached place up in the hills on the outskirts of Manchester. I caught sight of his face poking through the neck curtains as I parked up. He was wearing a face mask. He burst through the front door a moment later. 
Frank! he called. I smiled at him casually through the window. Hi, Uncle. Where have you been? he said. I've been worried about you. I did return all those texts in the end, I said. You didn't answer any of my questions, though, he said. Like, where have you been living? You can't be in a mobile home at a time like this. I've been living in a house as it happens, I said. Oh, good. Sadly, it burned down. Oh, not so good. Are you okay? I'm fine. I wasn't there at the time. You'd better come in, he said. You can live here now, obviously. That'd be nice, Frank. That'd be very nice, actually. Thanks, mate, I said, climbing out of the car. Can I hug you, he said. I'm not in one of these bubble things with anyone. It's just me here. I've been staying here secure and all that. Go ahead, I said. Uncle Claude hugged me. I don't think you need to wear your mask in the house, I said. I know, he said. I actually quite like it. It's very comfortable. Okay, I said. As long as you take it off to eat. Claude must have been expecting me because there was a room made up with my name written on the door. Inside there was a large framed photograph of myself and Claude, a selfie from the funeral we'd attended a few weeks previously. Claude had a massive grin on his face. I looked like I didn't want to be there, which I suspect is how I look most of the time. Aside from the picture, the room itself was very comfortable. There were worse places I could have ended up, that's for sure. I checked my phone and saw a text message from Jamie. It was all in block capitals and contained a string of highly inventive insults. It made me laugh. Jamie called me later that day. I answered rather reluctantly. Are you okay? he said. I'm fine, I said. I've gone to stay with my Uncle Claude. Good to hear, he said. I wouldn't want to see you homeless. Listen, I said. I really am sorry, mate. I've never done anything like that before. These things happen, he said. It was an accident. I'm sorry I said all those horrible things on that text. I was angry about the situation. I didn't mean to make it personal. I just reread your text from earlier, the one that said, whoops, soz. I actually roared with laughter at it. I was going to say I laughed at your text too, but I stopped myself. Did you have any valuables in the house? He said. Nothing I can't replace, I said. I kept all the important stuff locked away in the van. I may have kept my birth certificate and passport in the room, just because I thought they might be more secure in the house, but actually, the fact that they've been destroyed doesn't really change anything, right? Considering what's happened, it's kind of ironic that I chose to keep my official documents in the house and Frank and Benedict's secret robbing diary in the van. Now my unofficial document has been saved from destruction. What do you mean? said Jamie. Oh, I never mentioned Frank and Benedict's secret robbing diary, I said. I don't think so. Oh, well, it's a long story. I have this friend, he's famous actually, maybe you've heard of him, Benedict Cumberbatch. You're friends with Benedict Cumberbatch, said Jamie. I don't see why everyone has to be so surprised, I said. Someone's got to do it. That's a fair point, said Jamie. I believe you. Well, why wouldn't you? I said. Why would I make it up? No offence to Benedict, but if I was going to pretend to be friends with a celebrity, I wouldn't choose him. I'm not sure anyone would. Well, that's a bit harsh. You haven't met him. Why? What's he like? It's complicated, I said. Let's not go into it. I think the question you should be asking is, what is Frank and Benedict's secret robbing diary? That's a very good question, said Jamie. Sorry I got sidetracked by the Hollywood connection. Tell me more.
There isn't much more I can tell you, I said. Me and Benedict were planning a bank heist, or at least we had this idea that we could pull off this bank heist if we wanted to. But it was purely hypothetical, just a fun game the two of us were playing. It's all recorded in this notebook that I kept locked away in the van. I only mentioned it because I thought it was kind of funny that the robbing diary was saved, but any proof of who I am is now officially up in flames. Well, I'm glad you're taking this in such high spirits, said Jamie. Is Glenda okay? I said. Is she mad as well? She'll get over it, he said. She doesn't care too much about money and stuff. Our money isn't really affected, I don't think. Insurance should pay out nicely. You're officially our tenant now, so... Am I? I said. Of course you are, he said. Yeah, but I'm not officially official, am I? You signed the contract, yeah? I sent it out to you last week, first class. Don't tell me you didn't get it. I got it. Thank God for that. I didn't actually sign it, though. The line went silent. Obviously, I added, I wasn't expecting for the house to burn down, otherwise I would have got straight onto it. You're joking, right? said Jamie. I'm not. Jamie's voice exploded into a barrage of insults, several of which were replicated from his initial text message. I was going to apologise, but he'd ended the call already. Downstairs, Uncle Claude had cooked us a roast dinner. The only vegan-friendly components were the broccoli and carrots. I put them in a sandwich, which tasted quite nice. Claude munched on his chicken with his blue surgical mask tucked under his chin. I suppose I'm going to have to cook ethically now you're here, Claude observed grumpily. I can cook, I said. You'll like my cooking. You can if you like, said Claude. I might miss my lamb chops. I can cook lamb chops, I said. Can you? It's not rocket science. So what are you going to do? Cook two separate meals? I don't have much else to do at the moment. Oh, you've got more books to write, I'm sure, he said, maintaining the general air of disapproval. Everything I am had recently been published. Evidently, Claude was still annoyed at my insistence that he doesn't read a word of it on the grounds that he might find some of its revelations uncomfortable. For reasons that will become clear, he's not allowed to read this book either. As it happens, I said, I do most of my writing in my head while I'm doing other things. Cooking actually helps the creative process. Good to hear, he said. Working on anything new? Yeah, I said. It's a book about the events leading up to me getting arrested. Oh, well, I've always wondered about that, he said. You're not allowed to read it, I said. After dinner, I returned to my room and texted Jamie. I really am sorry. I don't know if this is going to make up for my mistakes in any way, but I've remembered another story. It's actually the best story I know. Give us a call and I'll tell it to you. Jamie called me back half an hour later. This had better be good, he said. Thank you for listening. You now have the choice of moving straight on to episode 3 or sticking around for the optional bonus content that will appear right after the theme song. It's called the footnote section. It's a lot of fun. Check it out if you like or I will see you in episode 3. 
If you like what you've heard, please visit my website, frankburton.co.uk, for more information about me and my work. I have another podcast called I Like the Sound. I have written several books, including the first two installments of the Ragbag series, Everything I Am and Getting Away With It. I recently made a four-part podcast series with David Ebar from the band Herman Doom. It's called Not On Top, and I have to say, it's excellent. I will see you soon. Right, here we are. Welcome to the Ragbag Presents Footnotes section once again. And um, yeah, just got to enjoy that theme tune once again as well. That's great, isn't it? I mentioned Dennis Potter last week, didn't I? And it turns out that the Dennis Potter TV series Pennies from Heaven features this song. It features Words Are In My Heart. Can you believe it? It does. I don't know if it's that version or not. I've not actually seen Pennies from Heaven. I'm sure it's very good, and I intend to watch it one day. Yeah, the great Dennis Potter. It has come up once again in this podcast. There we have it. Let's have a look at some of the other um, cultural highlights from uh, this week's episode and explore them in some more detail. Margaret Thatcher's first ever line of dialogue in a ragbag story. Is that correct? I think it must be. I think I don't recall having mentioned... Margaret, or I definitely haven't used Margaret Thatcher in a speaking role. I don't think she's ever had a line of dialogue in a ragbag story. Um, so this is her first appearance and probably her only appearance, to be fair. I don't know how else I would use her in any other stories. It's a bit of a um, tip of the hat to getting away with it as well, I think. Uh, there's a moment in that which is very similar to the scene that Thatcher appears in where it's going back to the 1980s and the whole um, myth about this group who took the Eiffel Tower hostage. And um, there's a line in there that that says um, 
some people say that the president Francois Mitterrand was in the room at the time. So it's it's a bit of a it's a very similar story in its own way, but because because this is about kind of an urban myth as well, obviously. And Margaret Thatcher was in the room this time. So yeah, nice little bit of uh, symmetry between the the two stories, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I've really thought about all these things, haven't I? What a genius I am! It occurs to me that that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are not from the UK. I, I think most people who listen to the podcast are in the United States and it's very interesting to me how the international reputation of uh, politicians such as Margaret Thatcher if you're in the UK you don't really think you don't necessarily think in that much detail about how the UK looks to people looking in from outside I mean I shudder to think what people think of the current Prime Minister but I've got no idea what people make of him bewildering it's bewildering to us so I don't know what you think very odd isn't he but uh, Margaret Thatcher was very odd as well in her own way. It didn't really hit home with me that she may have been perceived differently in other countries until I saw a film, uh, saw, what's a film, like a kid's film a few years ago. I can't remember which film it was now, but there was a scene with a young girl who was kind of uh, trying to find some inspiration. about. She, she had some lofty ambitions about wanting to kind of grow up to be like this great woman. And um, she had this book, The Great Great Women from History. And she was just leafing through the pages and there were figures like Mother Teresa and Marie Curie, people of that calibre. And then one of the pages was Margaret Thatcher. For a British person, that's a real glaring kind of, what? What? <laughs> Margaret Thatcher is in a book of great women from history. Really? <laughs> and um, it's funny that... Um, that she was there in that because uh, when I was growing up I was a kid in the 1980s and I just took it for granted that everybody hated Margaret Thatcher because that was what everyone was saying I mean we used to we used to sing songs about how much we hated Margaret Thatcher in the playground when I was a little kid can you believe that it was there was one that went um two four six eight who is it we really hate Maggie Thatcher um and it went on <laughs> I'm not going to sing the whole song because it's quite quite brutal um, for a playground song. It was a song about how we were going to murder Margaret Thatcher and the ways in which we were going to do it. And uh, I'm not claiming responsibility. I didn't write this song. I don't know who wrote it, actually. I'd be very interested to know who wrote that song. It became like a playground, whether it was like used by like proper adult like protesters on marches and stuff like that. Were they singing it? Or was it like a proper... The lyrics were very juvenile. It was about putting her in a bin and, and applying sellotape to the bin so that uh, so that she suffocated inside the bin. <laughs> it's just really brutal. And uh, I remember I was in the Scouts and we were singing. No, I wasn't even in the Scouts then. I was so young. I was uh, must have been in the Cub Scouts. I must have been about sort of eight years old and we were singing this song. And uh, the Scout leader caught us singing this song about killing Margaret Thatcher. Uh, he said, just sing that song for me again, please. And we sang the song for him. And um, he was. Uh, he said, that's great, I really like that. The only thing the ob that he objected to was the fact that the song included the word bitch. He said, I, I really I do not like that word. You should not use that word to describe a woman. But I, I applaud your sentiments. <laughs> He was happy for us to, to sing a song about killing the sitting Prime Minister. But um, 
calling her a bitch was too far. And I agree with him, actually. I, I agree that, that there is a certain level of really misogynistic overtones to a lot of the kind of anti-Thatcher rhetoric that you come across. I remember when Thatcher died, I was, you know, all the people celebrating and uh, I did, didn't sit very well with me that. I didn't like that at all. No fan of Margaret Thatcher myself, but, you know, just someone's died, just sing songs about it, you know what I mean? Ding dong, the witch is dead. And uh, it's really juvenile, you know, I was... <laughs> It's like being back in the playground again, you know. I think if she'd have been a man, then people wouldn't have done that. That would be my suspicion. I mean, you know, were people singing, were kids in the playground singing songs about murdering Ronald Reagan, for example? I mean, you'd probably get arrested for that, wouldn't you? And yet, very similar figure, but he was a bloke. So that's all I'm saying. All I'm saying is that it needs looking at that. It needs, uh, I think, perhaps future generations will look back maybe a bit more kindly than, than we have been on on Thatcher, purely because there's a there's a discrepancy there between uh, her appearing in a book of great women from history in an American movie. I, I presume that's a real book. I mean, unless it was a book that somebody just put together for the film, like a like a fake sort of great women from history book. It, but even if it is just a prop from a movie, that's there is the potential that she would be included in a book of that of that nature in the United States. I mean, she never would be in the United Kingdom. She was so, um, I say she was so hated, but I mean, she was democratically elected on, was it two occasions or three occasions? She was prime minister for, for the whole of the 1980s. You know, people were voting her in, is what I'm trying to say. And a lot of people loved her, but I mean, there's so many people hated her that it'd be far too controversial to describe her as a great figure from history. There was a very amusing story recently about there's a statue that was erected in Thatcher's hometown, a, a statue of Thatcher. There's never been one before because nobody really wanted to have one. But, yeah, and as soon as the statue was unveiled, people started throwing eggs at it, which was <laughs> something really hilarious about that, I think. They're very... It's, uh, I don't want to get stereotypical on you, but there is something quite quintessentially British about throwing eggs at a statue of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> it, it interests me, the thought process that goes into that as well, because it's not an impromptu act. You have to go and buy the eggs. And so there's a whole thought process there. I'm, I'm going to go to the shop, I'm going to buy these eggs, and then I'm going to throw the eggs at a statue of Margaret Thatcher. As as political statements go, it's just a little bit odd, I think. I, you know, I can see what you're trying to do, that you are expressing distaste for the ideological beliefs of this dead woman who they've erected a statue to. But, you know, maybe there's better things you could be doing with your time... <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I, I, I appreciate this. I mean, you know, I'm against the ideology too. I, th I think Thatcher's ideology was, was just horrible. And it was strange to have a prime minister who was openly encouraging the population to be selfish. And she used to say things like, she used to say kind of things like that. There's no such thing as society. It's just stuff like that. And um, very odd that you know, the, the, the guy who we've got now is kind of, Equally evil, I think, but he's he doesn't necessarily openly encourage that sort of thing. 
What else do we have a reference to? There's another reference to getting away with it. With the 9-11, uh, Noddy asks Frank, what were you doing on 9-11? He says that I was with my friend Jenna. Uh, it's, of course, a reference to a scene which was recounted in the book Getting Away With It. There's a reference to the video game Super Mario Kart, which um, I don't have much to say on that subject. Um, it's just a, just a cultural reference there. Threw that in. Musical references now. Um, if You Go Away, the song. Now, we will know this if, you've, uh, if you're a long-time listener to the show. Um, you'll know that this is the song that closed the, uh, the whole 100-episode run of Ragbag. And it was me and Uncle Claude singing the song, If You Go Away. And, uh, yeah, what a touching moment that was. <laughs> well, it was in its own way, I suppose. Daniel by Elton John. Always loved that song. And, um, yeah, I think I just threw that in there um, to the to this, just to say that I like the song. So there you have it. Not the first time I've mentioned um, the song Daniel by Elton John. I've mentioned it in the nonsense edition. I think I said something quite profound about it as well. I have to go back and listen to it. I'm not sure what I said about um, something something profound that I said in the nonsense edition of Ragbag. I don't know why I'm drawing your attention to that particular episode. I think it's the worst one. It's, it's not the worst one. It's just a, like it was like an experiment that it didn't go quite the way that I wanted it to go. And um, it's an interesting interesting episode of the podcast. I just don't think I did a good enough job. There's some good. There's some good bits in that episode. There's I talk about the history of the high five, which I was very I was very pleased with that part actually. Um, talking about the history of the high five and the fact that the the high five as a gesture has only existed since 1975, and I go into a whole kind of uh, spiel about that. And I was very pleased with the history of the high five section of that show, but the. Um, as you might imagine, um, the nonsense edition is uh, it's mostly nonsense, and it it kind of works and kind of doesn't work. But that's that's the nature of experimentation, isn't it? Really, uh, you've got to try these things out. But if I was going to pick a worst episode of Ragbag, it would be that one. So I don't know why I'm drawing your attention to it, apart from the fact that it contains another reference to the Elton John song Daniel. So there you go. We're rambling now. Let's move on. This is Uncle Claude's first appearance in this series. But if you're new to Ragbag, you, you ought to know that Uncle Claude is a very important character in um, the Ragbag world. And he appeared on the Ragbag podcast on, on many occasions, not least of all the, the, the one that I just mentioned, the, uh, the 100th, 100th episode grand finale. He was in that. And um, he was also in the two books uh, everything i am and briefly in getting away with it as well so he's uh, he's very much stamped across the whole universe really so watch out for uncle claude he's only in prollywood for a bit as well but he's one of those characters who you have to watch out for he keeps popping up uh, but he is an important character so that's all i'm saying all i'm saying is an important character and uh, there's a reference to the funeral uh, now, the funeral, uh, which is a scene that took place at the very end of Everything I Am. I won't tell you whose funeral it is or anything like that. I don't want to spoil the ending of that book. But uh, that is a reference to the end, the very last chapter of Everything I Am. So there you go. The selfie of... Uh, apparently, there was a selfie taken uh, with Uncle Claude. 
So that's all of the cultural references for this time all tied up. I talked quite a bit about uh, TV last time, so I won't talk too much about TV this time. I want to talk about books instead, I reckon. There's one book that I've been reading in particular that um, I'll tell you about in a minute. But um, it reminded me of another thing. I'm going to have to talk about TV again for a bit, just so that I can introduce this particular cliche, this cliche of the week. Shall we do a cliche every week? A different cliche every week. Uh, maybe we will. Or maybe we'll just do this one cliche, which uh, sprung into my mind. You know, whenever you get, in film or TV in particular, you get a character who is introduced as a recovering alcoholic or a recovering addict. It's It just frustrates me when the inevitability that at some point that character is going to fall off the wagon, which is not realistic because a lot of recovering addicts don't do that. I think it's a real kind of cheap trick and it really gets my goat when I see that happen. Particularly, you know it's going to happen. You know at some point, if that character has been introduced as a recovering alcoholic, you know at some point they're going to go, oh, to hell with it, I'm having a drink. And that kind of implies that that, that is what recovering alcoholics do, which is not the case. And also it's been done so many times that you can see you can just see it happening and you know that what's what is going to happen next with this character is that when they start getting a little bit wound up or a little bit stressed, oh, they're going to turn to the bottle and then it's all going to go wrong, you know. And th there's a few things wrong with that. But, I mean, one of the things is that what are you trying to say? What, what are they trying to say with this? Apart from addiction is a bad thing, isn't it? It feels it feels kind of exploitative, really. Exploitative in terms of these are kind of real world issues that are being made into a kind of entertainment, and uh, yeah, it annoys me. If, even in it happens in like some great, you know, really great TV shows where this has happened. It happened in House of Cards with uh, Doug Stamper with the recovering alcoholic, and then he fell off the wagon. You could tell it was going to happen as well. That annoyed me, and. Um, Succession, one of the greatest like TV shows of all time, in my opinion. Absolutely love Succession. But I mean, there's the um, the recovering addict character in that who, you know, it was established quite early on that that's what he was. And I think by episode three, he was back on the drugs again. And it just felt, it kind of felt like a missed opportunity that you could have had this character who was a recovering addict who never touched the drugs again, you know. Or kind of, uh, instead of terms of a drug, he turned to something else. So that is not a thing that I, um, uh, that's uh, one of the rules that I have laid down for myself in my own writing, is that I'm never going to do that. Um, if I have a character who is recovering at addicts of some kind, that they, they will remain a recovering addict. Oh uh, yeah, fast forward 20 years and then um, <laughs> I'll listen back to this in 20 years time and see if I have managed to stick to that <laughs> it's kind of like falling off the wagon myself falling off the cliche wagon i've given up cliches but they became a little bit too tempting and so i fell off the cliche wagon uh 20 years into the future we'll see if that happens but um the reason i'm bringing this up is that um i was recently um re-looking at some old uh tintin books you know tintin tintin's great isn't it and uh, in particular, Tintin and the Grab, Grab, Tintin and the Crab with the Golden Claws. I love that. I remember reading that when I was a kid and loving it then. And um, 
it was uh, it was really great fun. You know, interesting to see the bits of the Tintin books that have dated and the bits that are actually have stood the test of time really well. Uh, most of it has. I mean, I think most of the stuff that's in the Tintin books really can be appreciated by the modern reader. There's probably a few racial stereotypes that there probably is. I think there is in the Tintin and the Crab with the Golden Claws. It's set in the Middle East. And, um, you know, there's a few kind of uh, bad guys on camels shooting guns and stuff. A little bit of stereotyping going on, but nothing that's, you know, it's fairly standard. I mean, it, you would probably see the same thing in a, in a Bond movie, in a 21st century Bond movie. You know, so it's not exactly, uh, I wouldn't call it racist. I mean, there are racist bits in some of the uh, Tintin books that are out of print, like um, the Tintin in the Congo. Is the notorious one where Tintin goes to the Congo, and um, there's, I've n I've not read the book because it's out, it's not really available, I don't think. But um, I've seen like a, there's a scene from that where Tintin is kind of teaching a class of Congolese kids, and they're they're very kind of crudely drawn in terms of the way that they look, kind of uh, ethnic stereotyping there, and uh, Tintin's saying to them, "I want to tell you all about your home country." Belgium. Imperialism. Great, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, so, Tintin in the Congo, I'd, I'd avoid that one, but yeah, Tintin in the Crab with the Golden Claws, uh, I think is uh, still a great book. I mean, apart from its treatment of alcoholism, which is, uh, yeah, uh, very entertaining, I have to say, but um, very weird to see the way that alcoholism was dealt with as kind of a, like a, a joke in a children's book, you know. Captain, it's Captain Haddock's first appearance in a Tintin book. So he's introduced to, is the kind of drunken sea captain on this boat that Tintin ends up on because he's chasing some bad dudes or something. And he befriends Captain Haddock and he says to him, well, you know, you really need to stop drinking, Captain Haddock. Think about your mother. And uh, yeah, that that's the way to talk an alcoholic down. <laughs> Stop drinking, think about your mother. Um, so he's, he's, he's got all that going on and uh, Captain Haddock says, yeah, yeah, I will stop drinking. Yeah, good idea, Tintin. You've really opened my eyes. And then um, they kind of get thrown off the boat, I think, and they end up on a life raft. They're kind of lost at sea on this life raft and Captain Haddock decides to have a bottle of whiskey because what the hell. So as a bottle of whiskey, then it sets fire to the life raft. Uh, because he gets cold, so he says, yeah, I'm going to start a bonfire on the raft. So he starts a bonfire, you know, drunk out of his mind. like, And, and then the, the, there's an aeroplane that they, um, some of the bad dudes are flying an aeroplane and they see the smoke from the bonfire. So they, they come and uh, somehow Tintin manages to kind of overpower them there's a lot of guns in these books as well i think that's probably another thing that you wouldn't necessarily see in a children's book today all the gunfights that happen in the Tintin books it just it's very kind of gung-ho sometimes and um so he manages to overpower these guys in the airplane takes their airplane ties them up brings captain haddock onto the airplane with him I'm slightly annoyed about the fact that he set fire to the life raft but there you have it i think Captain Haddock at this point finds another bottle of whiskey and just downs it. And then, uh, while Tintin's flying the plane, Captain Haddock's 
smashes a glass bottle over his head and uh, <laughs> and they crash in the desert for some reason Tintin just not bothered by this it's, it's just like yeah it's all right it's uh Captain Haddock being his crazy old self just smashing a glass bottle over somebody's head while they're flying a plane and so walking through the desert dehydrated everything like that Captain Haddock really wants another bottle of whiskey obviously he starts hallucinating and he sees Tintin turns into a bottle of champagne he can he uh, he can see like Tintin with his big sort of blonde quiff thing the the blonde quiff turn looks like a champagne cork and his body kind of turns into a champagne bottle and so Captain Haddock grabs hold of this champagne bottle tries to open it but in reality what he's doing is actually strangling Tintin to death <laughs> somehow he, he gets out of that as well and somehow also he just he just pa- passes this off as like you know um, <laughs> it's just the sort of thing that crazy guy Captain Haddock does we're still friends you know he's fine just leave him alone you know, he's, he's a happy drunk this fella <laughs> Just interesting that the way that um, the way that alcoholism is is dealt with in the children's books from um, the nineteen fifties. So there you go, Tintin and the Crab with the Golden Claws. Go check it out. What else do I have to recommend? I did mention um, I was slagging off Neil Young and Bob Dylan last time. Well, I wasn't slagging him off. I was just saying that I don't necessarily connect with their music in the same way that other people do, or I can only handle it in small doses at the very least. But I must say, Neil Young's album, Americana, it's called. It's kind of an album of like traditional folk songs that are done with uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horse. They're done in their own particular style. Absolutely great album, that. I really like it. I think what I particularly like is that it's, they're not Neil Young songs, so <laughs> I can get on better with them because they're... They are just like traditional songs that he's singing. Just an absolutely great version of She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain, which, um, you know, I I just kind of think of that as like a children's nursery rhyme type thing. But he it, it really kind of does a fantastic version of um, She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes, when she comes. It's great. <laughs> I haven't I haven't exactly done justice to it there. Bob Dylan allowed me to recommend Bob Dylan's film, which I saw recently, Masked and Anonymous. It's fantastic. I didn't know that it existed until recently. Um, it came out about 10 years ago, I think. It's got a really fantastic cast, including Bob Dylan in the in the main role, playing like a fictionalised version of Bob Dylan. Um, he's got a different name, but he sings all the songs that he sings are Bob Dylan songs. You know, a lot of kind of uh, self-referential stuff is in there. But um, I, I think Dylan wrote it, uh, kind of wrote the script. And the, the script is brilliant. There's so, so many uh, really great lines in there, and um, there's there's loads of loads of really amazing actors in there. Proper kind of all-star cast. Loads of people just keep on popping up and say, "Oh, that guy's in it as well. Nice." Master Anonymous, I recommend it. If you're in the UK, which most of you are not, it is available on the BBC iPlayer at the moment. So uh, check that out. Otherwise, check it out on a, a streaming service of your choice. So they're my recommendations uh, for this time. And I think we've covered everything. Uh, we've we've gone... What have we talked about? Talked about Margaret Thatcher, 
talked about Elton John, we've talked about Crab with the Golden Claws, we've talked about a lot of things, haven't we? Next time we'll talk about some other stuff, so let's do that. Yeah, I will see you next time.